written by Luther some 12 years after he began what we know as the Protestant Reformation by the nailing of those 95 theses, the door of the Wittenberg Chapel on October 31, 1517. It's a hymn that speaks powerfully to God's truth in Christ, a hymn that reflects that which Luther came to know and to understand from God's Word reflects his conversion, reflects his life and desire to live in complete obedience to the Word of God. We turn this morning to Galatians, the first chapter. Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first five verses this morning. We're beginning a new series this morning uh, that will take us probably through the new year as we go through the book of Galatians, sometimes in large segments, sometimes just a few verses at a time as we have this morning. Galatians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given us so many years ago that is still so relevant today. We pray that you will be with Pastor Bob as he helps explain this word to us, that you will guide us, bring him the words that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First of all, an introduction. Why study Galatians? Well, I'll give you at least three reasons. One, simply put, it's biblical. It's in the Bible. Why would we not study one of the books of the Bible? That would be a a strange question. No, I don't think we ought to study that book. We ought to study this book or that. But let's not deal with Galatians. Now, Galatians has been included in the Word of God. It is one of the 66 books that we testify are indeed God's inspired Word to us. And so, one reason to study Galatians, it's biblical. Two, it is historical. And that goes back to the introductory comments a few moments ago. It is the book of Galatians that Luther is wrestling with. As you know, or perhaps you didn't, Luther was raised a Roman Catholic. Luther was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, but he was finding no peace. He was seeking and striving to do all that the church was teaching him to do in order to find peace for his soul, and he wasn't finding it. All the works, all the various ways in which the Catholic Church of the 1500s was inventing us outside of the Word of God in order for, for men to find themselves justified before that holy God. Luther was finding no peace. He was finding no joy. He was finding no hope. He was in the midst of his study of Galatians when God's Spirit woke him, when God's Spirit brought him to life. 
And as we go along, we'll eventually come to that text. Lord willing, it will be the Sunday before the Reformation that we get there. But, but you need to know that this, this, was, this was foundational to our understanding of why it is that Luther stands up, nails those theses, why it is that he's willing to stand before uh, the church officials of his day and declare that we are justified by faith. And upon that he stood, regardless of what men were going to do to him. And we know that what they eventually did is they excommunicated him, which led to threats upon his life as well. And if it were not for the protection of a German prince, we might be writing a whole different story. But in God's providence of history, such was not the case. And we have born in 1517 the Reformation. Now if you do some quick math, you should come up with the fact that this is then 500 years. If the Lord tarries when we get to October 31 of 2017, it will have been 500 years since Luther's Reformation that began, that God used this man to bring about perhaps the greatest religious change since truly Jesus Christ himself enters the world scene. And we need to appreciate that. The world has indeed been forever changed by the Protestant Reformation. Our lives as we live them today, with all the blessings, with all the benefits that we have in life, are a result either directly or indirectly of the Protestant Reformation. It is the Protestant Reformation that gives rise to education. The education of individuals who otherwise would not have been educated. It gives rise to science and all sorts of inventions. It gives rise to the formation of nations and countries. It gives rise to the idea of the republic, the idea of democracy as we understand it here in the United States. Indeed, the way in which we live, the style in which we live, the jobs, the occupations that are before you, the income that you have, are in a way a result of the Protestant Reformation. Without this, we would have been kept in the bondage of feudal lords. It is the Reformation that breaks through, gives dignity to each man, gives dignity to each man's work and labor. It changed dramatically the worship. Even the worship that you have engaged in this morning would not have been done without the Protestant Reformation. I would have been uh, singing to you in Latin, and if you think my singing is bad, just think of what it would be like if it were in Latin. And you would not understand a word of it because you would be uneducated and unknowing. We would have probably had some sort of chancel choir singing as well, but that also would have probably been some sort of Gregorian chant that sounded more like a death march than anything else. Certainly not the lively congregational singing that we had this morning. Life changed as a result of God's using Luther's study of this book. Why study? It's biblical. It's historical. 
but it is also relevant. Luther writes at the beginning of his commentary of the fact that the challenge of justification by faith will be forever before the church of Jesus Christ. For Satan, with all of his wiles, will always seek to undo God's truth. God's truth that we are justified by faith through grace in Christ alone. That Satan always seeks to break down. And he doesn't just break it down in other religions, in other so-called Christian faiths. He breaks it down in our own heart. What is it that gives us a lack of assurance? It is the breakdown of our understanding that comes out of the book of Galatians that we are justified by faith. Satan wants us to have none of that. Satan wants us to, to somehow put on the burden of our own works, to put on the burden of guilt, to put on the burden of the fact that we are not forgiven, to put on the burden of the fact that we are under condemnation, not to hear God's glorious truth that we have been set free in Christ. Because you know what free people do in Christ? They testify. They have joy on their face. They have hope. They have assurance. The people they meet. Become people who want to know what is this glorious hope that you have. People who forever have their hands in their face, who are forever holding their heads between their knees, weeping in sorrow, are not those that the world finds attractive in the right sense of the word. Paul says we are to be the aroma of Christ in this world. We are the smell of Christ, the smell of forgiveness, the smell of being justified. And so this challenge is indeed relevant. It's a challenge because it's a, a challenge in our church world, a challenge in our society, in our culture, but it's also the challenge in our own hearts. So let us begin our study of the letter of Paul. To the Galatians. First of all, and secondly, I should say, as far as the outline is concerned, let, let's set the context. We need to do just a brief history. What are we talking about here? Well, the area of Galatia is the area that we today would, would know as Turkey, the area of Asia Minor. It was uh, overtaken by a group of people called the Gauls, G-A-U-L-S, in about 280 B.C., and the people who inhabited Galatia of the day in which Paul is writing are descendants of those Gauls. They were people who were very fickle, people who, who turned uh, on a dime is our expression, people who were not committed to something for very long, people whose emotions tend to run their lives rather than thoughtful processes. Paul, before writing this letter, has made two missionary journeys for sure to this area. His very first missionary journey was to the area of Galatia, and then he repeats that later on. It also was not without its problems. It is on that missionary trip to this particular area where at one time people are going, well, this is great news. Next instant, these must be the gods. Paul says, no, I'm not. 
Next instance, they're picking up stones to stone him to death. Turning on a dime. Fickle. Emotions that, that so quickly were changed. We see it on those missionary journeys of Paul. Secondly, in terms of the context, not only that as the background of the history, but secondly, the author. Notice how this begins. It begins with Paul identifying himself. Paul. And how is the first words that he uses to identify himself? He says he is an apostle. He is an apostle that has been commissioned as an apostle, not by men, not by a church board, but he has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself and by the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, he is coming with all the authority you absolutely can. Why does Paul begin this? Because we're going to find that there are two challenges found in the book of Galatians. The one is the challenge of justification by faith, not by works. But the second challenge, again, is to Paul's right to be an apostle. See, it's interesting that when you're going to challenge an important doctrine such as justification by faith, which is what Paul has been teaching, which is what Paul has been advocating, that rather than debating the issue... The critics of Paul went after Paul's character. They didn't want to deal with the truth of the doctrine. They would instead wanted to pick holes in Paul. Because if you can bring Paul down, then that which Paul is teaching must not be important either. So Paul has to defend himself again against the challenges that he is not a rightful apostle, that he has not been called. So in his letter to the churches, now of Galatia, Paul begins by defending himself once again, that he is indeed this apostle of Christ. And, and we're reflecting back then, are we not, to the book of Acts, where we see Paul on his way to Damascus, where we hear Christ call to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We have the blinding of Saul. We have Saul going to the prophet and there receiving his sight and there being called by the Lord to go and to serve, to go and bring the good news, becoming an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is indeed risen from the dead by the power of God the Father. This is who Paul has received his authority from. This is who Paul is teaching under the authority of. The second thing to note about that is, and the others that are with me. Note that in verse 2. Paul, after defending his apostleship, then says in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. Now, Paul never in the book goes through and explains who these brothers are that are with him. We know that often on Paul's missionary journeys, others accompanied him. But we kind of have this known historically as far as where we may be in the context of what is happening. And it seems like, probably historically, the best place to go is to go to Acts chapter 20. If you just turn to that a minute as we seek to try to figure out who is it that is with Paul at this particular time? 
Acts chapter 20. And this would be about the same time period that the book of Galatians is written. Acts 20, I'll start at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews... As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And now we read the list of those who are with him. A man by the name of Sopater, the Berean, the son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. That seems to be the group that Paul is in reference to, if we set it in the historical parameters. Although we cannot say for sure, we cannot identify in Galatians 1 verse 2, those as corresponding exactly to Acts 20 verse 4, it would seem in the context, in the historical record, that is who is with him. Which is interesting because it's a large number. In other words, this word, this word that is coming from the Apostle Paul is a word that is coming not just from him. It is a word that is coming from those who are with him as well. An inspired word of God, a word of truth. It's not just Paul out on an island preaching justification by faith. But this is the stand of the church. This is what the church teaches. This is what the church believes. Because this is what God has given to us as his divine truth. The history, the author, the recipients. We are writing, according to verse 2, the end of it, to the churches of Galatia. As far as we know, that would be four churches. Others might have been planted or started since, but that would include Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Those four churches. So the Christians in this particular region of the earth, Asia Minor, narrow it down, Galatia, but in particular to the churches that are located there. Once again, it's a reminder that these words were not for the world. These were not words for the pagan. It isn't like Paul's writing some general letter and he says, you know, publish this in in the Pisidian of Antioch times. Write this and put it in the Lystra press so that all the pagans know this. No, it was for the church. God's word for his people. See, we might be tempted to say, well, this is a word, you know, the unbeliever needs to hear this. Yes, they do. But we need to hear it too. For that is who it was first brought to, to us. And until we know this truth, we cannot possibly bring it to the world. 
So we've shared a little bit about why study, a little bit about the context. But let's look at this greeting, verses 3, 4, and 5. 3, 4, and 5. Let me read it again to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to think about this in four statements. Paul begins with grace. See, it is no accident that the very first word of greeting to these churches of Galatia is grace. That was the needed word. That was the necessary word. That is the only possible word to begin an address to people of Christ. Grace. See, it doesn't begin with works. Doesn't even begin with faith. Doesn't begin with hope. It doesn't begin with assurance. It begins with grace. Grace to you. Here is the apostle of Jesus Christ greeting these churches who are in the midst of great controversy, in the midst of great uproar, in the midst of a great crisis of false teachers coming in and seeking to undo the true gospel that Paul has brought to them as their missionary. The first word that Paul begins with is grace. Suppose there's many ways we could define grace, but let's use this as kind of our working understanding this morning. It's God being in favor towards us. It's God's goodness towards us that is undeserved, unmerited, unearned. As soon as you take the, the idea that we merit grace away from grace, it's no longer grace. If we have some sort of an idea that we have earned grace, we have earned God's favor, then we have no longer grace. Paul doesn't begin with merit to you. You deserve all sorts of praise. You deserve all sorts of merit. No. Grace to you. God's love to us that is undeserved. God's setting aside of our guilt, of our sin, of our condemnation. Do you ever notice how that Romans 8 passage begins? Reflecting back upon it, there is now no condemnation, meaning there was condemnation at one time. Grace is the fact that there is no more condemnation. You would think that as a Roman Catholic monk, 
that Luther could have started the Reformation right there. All he has to do is read the first word, right? Grace. For truly, that's what it's all about. Grace. It's not what I've earned. It's not what I deserved. Grace. God's undeserved favor. His unrelinquishing love towards you, towards me. But you see, by the time Luther is in the midst of his study, grace has been watered down. Grace has become that which you did earn. You had to do your X amount of Hail Marys. You had to give X amount of money to the church. And then maybe there was grace. But you see, there was never enough. There was never enough. You could never do enough. You could never say enough prayers. You could never sleep on enough bed of nails. You could never sit upon a 30-foot pole for a long enough period of time to earn God's favor. And yet that's what the church was teaching. You could earn grace. You could earn God's love. You could earn God's forgiveness. All you had to do was more, more, more. And the list became longer and longer and longer of the more you had to do. So when Peter, or excuse me, when Luther reads grace to you, he's thinking, oh yeah, all that I have to do to earn God's favor. It's not until later in the book that Peter begins to fully realize, or Luther, I don't know why I keep saying Peter, Luther keeps realizing what grace truly is. Uncovered from the false teaching of the day. See, what Paul is dealing with here in Galatians and the churches of Galatia are dealing with is a grace that doesn't look like grace either. It's a grace that's clothed in the law. Only by full obedience to the law will God ever forgive you. Only by full obedience to the law will God grant you forgiveness. Only if you fully and perfectly obey the law, the law in all of its entirety, the law not just in the moral law that we read this morning, but the law in terms of all the ceremonial law. You've got to do all that stuff. You've got to keep all those feasts, all those festivals. You've got to do all those washings. You've got to do all that stuff in order for God to forgive you. Paul comes and he begins his words of instructions to this church with that most beautiful, most needed, most necessary of words. Grace to you. God's love in Christ unleashed upon your sinful life. There is, you see, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Grace to you. And peace. You see, it begins with grace, but it results in peace. You never have peace before grace. You can't have peace without an understanding of grace. Only when you understand grace can you receive peace. 
The peace here that Paul is speaking of is the peace of an inner comfort. And the outer blessings that that state of mind gives to you. This is not a peace in the sense of all sorts of blessings that come to us. Wealth and uh, health and all that sort of thing. That, as, as if somehow that were a part. What peace is, it's the state of mind of knowing that I am no longer under condemnation. That I am no longer under judgment. That I am justified before the face of God. That my sin is washed away. That knowledge, you see, does affect our outer life. If I'm weighed down by sin every day and I go to my job, how would I perform my job? Oh, I got to do this job. I got to do this work. What does that do to my gut? What does that do to my heart? What what does that do to me physically? What what does that do to, to the life I live if I'm never giving forth a full effort to the work that I'm going to do? I'm probably going to stay on the bottom rung, aren't I? But when I approach life from the understanding that I am at peace with God because of grace. I'm not trying to earn His forgiveness. I'm not trying to earn His favor. God just bestows that. I can go through life. I can go to my job. I can go to my work. I can go to the store. I I can go through all of life understanding this great peace that has overcome me. How do I do my job? With a joy, with an intensity, with a desire. What's the result? Benefits. Benefits. Boss sees, hey, good job. We ought to raise your salary a little bit. See, if we have our hands out ready to serve, that's a whole lot different than our heads buried between our knees. Oh, it's so horrible. Life is just horrible. Peace. That state of mind of being of inner comfort. That's what the writers of the catechism, the Heidelberg, had that understanding. That's why they place it first. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is the only thing that brings you peace? of mine, is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all of my sins. Grace. Where does that comfort come from? It comes from grace. That peace. That calm assurance. That full assurance. That complete assurance. That when I breathe my last, I enter into the presence of the living God. Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, wrote the following. Sorry, I've got to find it again in a second. This greeting of the apostle is strange unto the world. And was never heard of before the preaching of the gospel. These two words, grace and peace, comprehend in them whatsoever belongeth to Christianity. Grace releases sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. The two fiends that torment us are sin 
and conscience. But Christ has vanquished those two monsters and trodden, trodden them underfoot, both in this world and that which is to come. This the world does not know and therefore can teach no certainty of the overcoming of sin, conscience, and death. Only Christians have this kind of doctrine and are exercised and armed with it to get victory against sin, despair, and everlasting death. It's a kind of doctrine neither proceeding from free will nor invented by the reason or wisdom of man, but given from above. Moreover, these two words, grace and peace, do contain in them the whole sum of Christianity. Grace contains the remission of sins. Peace, a quiet and joyful conscience. For peace of conscience can never be had unless sin be first forgiven. How is your sin forgiven? By grace. By grace. Not by what you do. Not by what you seek to earn. That only brings despair. That only brings agony. It only brings guilt. Grace releases us from sin's condemnation so that we can live with a quiet conscience. Grace to you and peace. It begins with grace, it results in peace. It starts with Christ. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See, this grace, this peace, really has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ. And that, which is, that is what Paul is putting forward. It's not your efforts. It's not your work. It's from Christ. He is the source of our grace. He is the source of our peace. They come to us in Christ, in His coming, in His sacrifice, in His victory, in His reign. It is Christ. That's why the sign out front for the last several weeks has celebrating the finished work of Christ, the completed work of Christ. Because that's what a Christian does. It doesn't look at the incompleteness of what Christ has done as if there's something else I need to do, something else that needs to happen. If you ask Luther in 1560, did Christ die for your sin? Luther would say, well, of course he did. Did Christ die upon a cross? Yes. Is the work of Christ on the cross finished? His answer was, no, no, no. I need to do more. I need to do more. Christ just began the work. He just started the work. He just made it possible. Now it's all up to me. It's all on my shoulders. It's all my responsibility to finish the work of Christ. There would be no celebration, brothers and sisters in Christ, there would be no celebration of our finished work because we'd never complete it. 
it'd never be done. You talk about the relevancy of that, think about this. In the Roman Catholic Church today, when somebody dies, what do they have to do? Was it enough that he lived? Was it enough he confessed Christ? Was it enough he was a member of the church? Was that enough? The answer is, no, we need to have a mass in his name because we're not sure he's in yet. We're not sure the work is finished. There needs to be more yet. We celebrate the finished work, the completed work of Jesus Christ. Because that's the source of grace. The reason God can dispense grace, the reason God can dispense His love and mercy and forgiveness to you is because of Christ. And because Christ's work is finished. A finished work that ends in glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It starts with Christ. But it ends in glory. It ends in the presence of Almighty God. It ends with a desire in the heart of the Christian to live for the glory of God. Think back to Romans 8 a minute. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. For what the law of sin and death was unable to do, God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Given that perspective, given that truth, how do you think God wants you to live tomorrow? God's just told you, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. How does God want you to live tomorrow? Oh, woe is me, I'm under so much condemnation. Oh, God's wrath is just pouring upon me. Oh, it's just, oh, I don't know, I'm just this horrible rotten. And I, oh, I kiss. Is that the way God wants you? Is that what God told you in Romans 8? That's right, therefore you're still under condemnation. I sent my son, he died upon a cross, he finished the work, but it's still condemnation for you. I still have wrath against you. Or as Romans 8 tell you this, you ought to live with peace. And the result of peace is joy and hope and assurance and glory. That we live not as citizens of this world, but that we live as citizens of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, my friend, when God has told you you're not condemned, don't self-condemn your own life. Live, live the glory, the glory of the one who has given you grace, who has bestowed upon you peace, who in Christ, lives within you. You God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you again for your word. A brief word at the beginning of a book, but 
So much there. So much there. Father, we, we, we just begin to uncover this. Lord, how we thank you for your word, for a living word. Lord, we pray that if there is, are those here this morning who are outside of Christ, who know not this Christ, who are not in Christ, who have not put their faith in your Son, who have not turned from sin and embraced Christ, Father, then by the power of your word and spirit, speak to that heart. But Father, for those who know Christ, Oh, may your word come to us as a word of refreshment, as a word of joy, as a word of hope, as a word of encouragement, as a word of victory for how we are to live today, tomorrow, and for all eternity, living for the glory of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. And God's people say again, amen.